0: Good evening, Goodbye Forever by Nachang rimshi chapter 15, part 2. I was no up-and-coming bluesman. It was a sad realisation. I did, however, belong to the tradition. I'd invested enough to say that. I wasn't good, but I did belong. This wasn't a doleful thought or even a state of sensible resignation. It was simply the recognition that most of life, if not all of it, was illusory. I could either buy into the illusion or see it for what it was. Sometimes illusion is joyous, sometimes it's tragic, and sometimes it's simply undesignated. I stared into the dark room for some uncharted time and realised after whatever time had passed that I was wide awake and thought free. Then, of course, I congratulated myself on being thought free and the whole baleful blancmange of concept filled what had been a most welcome space of being. There was always something to learn, to be learned, either from formal meditation or from the meditation that simply happened by accident. It had been obvious to me for a few years that meditation wasn't merely what you did, it was what you could become at any moment when you weren't manically conceptualising everything that registered with the senses. I realised then something that I had occasionally realised before, that if I could actually give up all ambition, while simply jumping into whatever presented itself next, I'd be free. That was the thing, to be free, to attain liberation. That's what the books conveyed, but sometimes I felt as if I was just along for the ride. Naturally, I wanted to catch a glimpse of the goal in terms of Vajrayana, but I knew that, just as I wasn't a blues hero, I wasn't a Buddhist hero either. I was content to play blues as a Vajrayana Buddhist and to live my life from that perspective, whatever came along. Whether I was to be a musician or not was somehow not within my control. There was what I wanted to accomplish and what the world would allow me to accomplish. All I could do was dance with whatever occurred and remember not to take myself too seriously as being whatever kind of something I might sporadically appear to be. Then I fell asleep. Then I woke suddenly from sleep wide awake but immersed in a realm of light that burst into existence presided over by Tara or whomever she might be. There was suddenly no problem with anything. I wordlessly knew that Steve and Ron were dead. I knew Lindy was gone forever. I knew everything I knew without formulating anything semantically. I was the mere awareness of everything I felt and had ever felt, but oppressed by nothing, identified by nothing. There was no sadness concerning anything because I knew something incomprehensible that made sense of everything without any sense of sense-making. There was no answer, but there was also no question no uncertainty. Joy and sorrow were two aspects of the same sensation and time had no linear meaning. There was simply space. Then I fell asleep. I was hoping that I'd re-enter this experience on the following night but nothing occurred. Nothing recurred for the rest of the holiday. I did meet a lady called Helen Smith, and I spent some happy time together with her before we each went home. Goodbye for ever. Somehow we never saw each other again. I have no idea why. After our unlikely meeting in Newquay, John Martin went on to perform with some big names. I pondered what might have happened if I'd had the devil with me that night, and wondered how it would have been if we'd remained in touch. But I'd made myself look silly with my primitive efforts on the echo. At the end of the evening, I'd decided discretion was the better part of valour. I had no cause to take up John Martin's time. What would I say, anyway? Fantastic set, John. John. He'd heard me at my worst. There was no way I could say anything to him that would not sound stupid. I'm really much better on lap slide. In fact, I'm really quite good. You'd be impressed if you heard me on the devil. I lay em low with that device. No, it was better that I should walk back to the hotel and go to bed. In any case, there was Graham. I stood in loco parentis, being that he wasn't yet 16, and our parents were back at the hotel. That was great, what he said about you, Vic, Graham exclaimed, sitting next to me on the back seat of our parents' car, driving home to Farnham. Yes, it was. John Martin's a gentleman and a genius are you going to meet him again? Who knows? Anything's possible, though I suppose it's just a question of what's likely. No, I don't think it's likely. We're not exactly on the same planet musically, and so there's no reason for him to want to hear from me again. After what he said about you, Graham said indignantly, how can you say that? I'm just being realistic, Graham. John Martin was just being kind to me. He wasn't seriously acclaiming me. I think he'd just been irked by the Bodmin Blues Band being hoity-toity and trying to get a rise out of me when they're fairly mediocre themselves. They're better than I am, but that's not saying a great deal. As I spoke I gazed at Cornwall passing by. The gorgeous green of it was restful on my eyes and it was good to enjoy that colour whilst discussing a somewhat sombre topic. I'm going to have to improve radically if I'm going to get anywhere as a professional musician unless I can find another band as a vocalist. John Martin, as I said, was extremely kind to me back there but that gives me no opening, unless he knows someone who wants a vocalist. I wouldn't want to push it in any case. It it would be embarrassing, and I've got no interest in being an, an embarrassment. The family drove back to Farnham after a holiday I'd never forget. I had mixed feelings. A storm of polarised notions lashed my sense of who I was, and where I was going. I sat staring out the window trying to settle back to the preferable sense of being nobody going nowhere. You're unusually quiet, Graham commented. Thinking, Graham. Thinking, he naturally inquired, and I replied, you know, I have no idea. There aren't any words to it. I'm just remembering things that have happened and seeing what sense there is when I put them all together. So far, well, I haven't got very far. Tell me where you've got then? Well, good things have happened. Successful pub gigs and a few clubs. Then there was the Farnham Folk and Blues Festival. I laughed tore the house down there. I wish I'd come along to that. So do I. I'd rather you had been there than at that grim performance I just gave. You sang Sitting on Top of the World really well, though. Yeah, well enough. I've sung it better, though. I got thrown by that audience right at the start. I'm used to laying out some lunatic line and having the audience laugh, but when they just sat there like a load of lunch-packed lemmings in a tepidarium, it kind of crimped me. I've never had that happen before. That New key audience was the abjectile end. They cheered you at the end, though. Yeah, I laughed. They did, but only because John Martin gave him no alternative. They'd have cheered a kangaroo from Kalamazoo if he'd said, "'Up and coming blues player, "'Mr. Mephistopheles Marsupial.' I mean, just think about it." I suppose so, but it must have been fierce meeting John Martin, though. "'Yep, that was brilliant,' I smiled. "'He's something else.' He's a genius like Ron, in a way, and he's really got such an open-hearted view of life. He was extremely kind and generous, but I'll need to develop my style and technique a lot before I risk contacting him. I wouldn't ask him to stake his reputation on me anywhere else. That would be the most pitiful behaviour. You could look up that bass player, you know, gaslight something or other, Graham asked. Gazza Mitchell? Yeah, Gaza. that's right. No, probably not, for various sensible reasons. I'll tell you about him sometime. I was aware of the parental ears in the front seats of the car. He's very, very far from being Steve on base, anyhow. He's more than a hop and a skip in advance of me, but not anywhere near improvising as Steve did. And even if we did get together, we'd have sounded, I whispered, muddy. That's what Ron worried about when I first suggested the two bass line-up. You see, Steve had a thorough background in music theory and gazzers like me, he can't read a note. Stephen Ron could understand what Jack Bruce was playing in a technical sense, and that made all the difference between Savage Cabbage and the average belt it out blues come rock and roller band. You see, Stephen Ron played in counterpoint to each other, like the two hands of a piano piece, but somehow more than that. Have you ever listened to Bach? No, not really. I don't really go for classical that much. You only hear the popular classics, Graham, when Dad plays his favourites. But, I whispered, there's a lot more than Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, you know. Like what? Graham asked. Well, Johann Sebastian Bach, for a start. Dieterich Buxtehude. Luigi Boccherini, Georg Philipp Telemann, Domenico Scarlatti, Arcangelo Corelli, Antonio Vivaldi. You know, Ron used to say that if you played the two hands of any Bach piano piece on four saxophones with just a slight change of timing, you'd have modern jazz. I think people get put off Baroque music because of the people who tell you that it's real music and blues isn't. It makes people reject Bach and the other amazing Baroque composers and that's a real pity. I know a lot about this because I sat in while Ron convinced Steve that he should be playing the Bach cello suites. He took a bit of convincing. But as soon as he did, his improvisation skills improved in leaps and bounds. You'll have to play some for me. I will. I've got the cello suites. I borrowed the album from Steve and, well, it's one of those things that never got returned. I mentioned it to his mother when I went to the funeral, but she told me to keep it.